Hello Phoenixes and welcome at the PAVE podcast created for the professional working to end the violence against women and children. I'm Marianne, your host, and today I'm honored to talk with Lindsay Deerlof. Lindsay has spent the past couple of years developing UK Says No More, a national initiative to raise awareness of domestic abuse and sexual violence in the UK, and Bright Sky, a domestic abuse and sexual violence awareness and prevention app for victims of abuse, professionals, and for those who are concerned about friend, colleague, or family member. Prior to this, Lindsay has worked with victims of domestic abuse, sexual violence, and violent crime for over 15 years. Today we will discuss UK Says No More, which is part of Hestia. Hestia delivers services across London and the surrounding regions, as well as campaign and advocate nationally on the issues that affect the people they work with. Last year, they supported over 9,000 men, women and children. This includes victims of modern slavery, women and children who have experienced domestic abuse, young care leavers and older people. From giving someone a home to helping them to get the right mental health support, they support people at a moment of crisis and enable them to build a life beyond the crisis. We also discussed the UK Says No More NFL Ambassadors Program, where football players teach other boys about what masculinity means in this society, consent in healthy relationships, and what their role is to end the violence against women. We also discussed listening without judging, an exercise Lindsay always does with her students to let them feel the reality survivors face when leaving an abuser, managing UK Says No More, working with surviving children, the importance of education, how to leave your work at work, and taking time to reflect. You can find show notes, links and references at www.aliannaloyga.com, but because my name is quite difficult, you can also go to pavepodcast.com and you will go to the same website. Let's get started. Lindsay, welcome to the PAVE podcast. Can you introduce yourself to our audience, please? Yeah, not a problem. Um, my name is Lindsay. Um, I am the head of our UK Says No More campaign, which is a national campaign around the prevention of domestic violence and sexual assault and is part of the international No More campaign. It is part of Hestia. Can you tell me a little bit more about UK Says No More and the No More campaign and more about Hestia, please, so that the audience get a little bit of insight. Yeah, no so UK Says No More, like I mentioned, is a national campaign. But for a campaign, it has to be seated somewhere within where our service users are, in, in honesty, and actually where survivors and victims sit. So Hestia is a London-based charity that works with victims of um, domestic abuse, sexual violence, and amongst a number of different other services. Um, Hestia is quite unique in a way that we provide support to adults in crisis and actually the types of support we can offer vary quite significantly so we have a number of services that work with people who are experiencing mental health issues so we have some outreach services as well as some accommodation based services we work with people who have offended previously so moving them into a place where they can be part of society again so we have a couple of um, move on accommodations that we work with them and we have a couple of young people services but I think with the services that we perhaps campaign the most about and the ones that we speak most about because um, the nature of what we do is our 
our modern day slavery services. So we have um, a service that works with victims of modern day slavery um, across London, as well as five different sets of a, um, accommodation based services for them. So that would providing them with a safe house. Um, and then obviously our domestic abuse services. So Hestia is the largest provider of domestic abuse accommodation based services in London. So what that really means in sort of I mean, is that, that we provide um, a huge amount of refuge spaces or safe houses for both women and their children who are fleeing from domestic abuse. But we also provide services around um, keeping women safe who are living in the community. So we have a, um, outreach services. We also have independent domestic violence advocacy services, which work with both men and women who've been victims of domestic abuse. And that's really looking at the crisis intervention. So working alongside the police, the court systems, trying to um, support someone to be as safe as possible. Sometimes that means supporting them to um, access a shelter. Other times it means working with the local housing department to secure that accommodation that they're currently in. And in most, in, you know, in most of the occasions, it's looking and working with the criminal and the civil courts to get protection orders in place and to enable someone to be safe. Um, in addition to that, we, we provide what we call here in England um, the multi-agency risk assessment conferences. And they're based on the coordinated community response model, meaning that everybody or every agency in the community has an opportunity and a responsibility to support victims of domestic abuse. So the idea of these conferences is bringing together, for example, social services, housing, the police, health, um, the independent domestic violence advocacy, advocacy services, and also other services that work within the borough, such as drugs and alcohol misuse services, counseling services. Um, and really what it is, is about creating a plan um, that can support and keep that victim of domestic abuse safe. And what's quite interesting about multi-agency risk assessment conferences, a lot of that support is actually aimed at the abuser. So for example, enabling that person to be rehoused in suitable accommodation away from the family and the victim of abuse, but also making sure that they're linked in with mental health support services if needed or drug and alcohol substance misuse services. But actually there's a lot of intelligence work that can happen from the police's perspective where they can work to um, perhaps um, look at different things that they could remove someone from the property on, for example, using the DVPO, which is domestic violence protection orders, or perhaps even um, exploring if there's any Claire's Law um, opportunities to keep a victim safe. So we do provide a number of different merits. Um, coordination services as well and so really what it happened was that you know Hestia being a charity that's worked with victims we probably work with about 6,000 people a year who have experienced domestic abuse and what we knew was that we needed to create an opportunity for our victims to have a voice and to be heard um, and what we do know about domestic abuse campaigns in the most part which which is you know is changing and you know obviously we have the fantastic and amazing incredible me too and hashtag times up but prior to both of those there are lots of campaigns campaigns around domestic abuse were quite short-lived. They often spoke to one part of the with the, you know, the spectrum of issues related to domestic abuse. And often it came with a fundraising ask. And often, you know, and what we do know is that sometimes when you're asking for money with one hand and saying that you need to prevent something with the other hand, that one of the two of those messages are louder than the other. And unfortunately, it's often that we need funding. So we set about creating a campaign that didn't do that, which was quite different in a way. And we wanted to make sure that if we were to have a campaign about domestic abuse and sexual violence and around how do we prevent it, that it was long lasting, that it didn't last just six months it needed to be you know an indefinite amount of time so we set about thinking and looking at examples across the world about what had worked and what hadn't worked and and we we came across because we friend and you know we all have a friend knows a friend who knows someone we know um, isn't that how fabulous we are as women that we all know someone who knows someone who can get us to somewhere where we need to be um, yes. and we were put in touch with the um 
the founders of the No More um, campaign, which originated in the US and was quite different to most campaigns because um, it originated from the voluntary sector, but also had a huge amount of influence um, from the advertising and media world. So, for example, Christina Howe and um, Rachel Howell, they are um, both in advertising. And so part of the creating of the branding around No More was for it to be really simplistic, for it to be memorable, for it to be a color that resonates. So all of those underlying factors were, were achieved through um, the development of No More. And when we contacted them about saying, well, can we bring No More to the UK because it was an easy enough um, concept to do it, they were over the moon and were incredibly supportive of it. So we've been able to, we launched UK Says No More in um, May 2016. And from then we've grown significantly over the past two years and I think one of the aspects of the campaign that we were really really focused on was that we needed you know in order to end domestic abuse we can't do this in isolation as the so for as a, for example as a charity that works with victims and survivors of abuse we can do part of that process but actually there is more that needs to happen and part of that more that needs to happen is about how do we work together as a community of charities a community of organizations and look at what resources we have internally to ourselves and say what role do we play in ending domestic abuse and sexual violence so the most important part of the campaign i suppose from my perspective is that we now have 140 partners who come from across the country um, and all work in different areas. So for example, we have some charities, we have some universities, we have some arts. Um, so we have some, for example, authors and um, playwriters, as well as big organizations like the National Football League or the NFL, who have all signed up to say no more to domestic abuse and sexual violence. And that's been incredibly important for us because one of the things that we've learned is that, especially from our survivors who have entered our services, is that the first person they speak to about domestic abuse is never or not often that specialist domestic abuse worker and you know statistics tell us that a victim of abuse will go to 35 different people um, before they find the the support that they need in order to leave and that at that point they could potentially experience 35 instances of abuse um, so you can see how this pattern can continue for for a long period of time and what many survivors have told us is that they first went to this agency and they told this support worker what they were experiencing and that support worker responded like this which they made them think that they weren't really experiencing abuse or the fact that they didn't think the support or, or help was available. So they then lived with it for another period of time until they found somebody else they felt they could trust. So we knew there was something that we could do by working with our partners. Firstly, we thought actually, you know, we need to learn about how well they're doing when they're supporting victims of abuse, because many of them, um, say for example, if you're a mental health support service um, and you're working with a victim of um, around their mental health support needs, but actually then they're telling they're experiencing domestic abuse. We know that these organizations are excellent at them putting them in contact with that specialist worker. And once they've met that specialist domestic abuse worker, the work that they can do together with the survivor is, you know, is incredible. So we needed to learn a little bit more from those experiences and give actually those agencies an opportunity to teach us about what is the, what are the questions they're asking? What, what type of process are they following? What would they need from this, the domestic abuse sector as a whole? And how can we work more closely together? So that's been so, so interesting over the past two years. But in addition to that, it's also about encouraging these organizations to feel and own that they have a responsibility to end domestic abuse and in particular it's really interesting when you start working with corporate organizations you know for, for example a solicitor's firm when they you know when you first would meet the HR team they would often say oh well domestic abuse happens as a, as a company we disagree with it we support any prevention measures that happen and you know but actually it doesn't really happen in my business 
Um, and it's never really happened in my business. Um, you know, so I really, you know, I really want to be part of this, but you know, we're not, it doesn't happen here. And that's been a really, really thing. Um, a great point that's for us. Quite naive. Absolutely. Think. Absolutely. But you know, it's, it's the number one thing that we all say is that yes, domestic abuse happens, but it doesn't happen in my home. It doesn't happen in my family. It doesn't happen in my group of friends. And then we all start getting honest about things and we all go, Oh my goodness, it happens everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, so part of that has been an incredible opportunity to start challenging some of these ideas about actually it doesn't happen in this business. And part of that has been by explaining not only the impact of abuse, but actually creating and highlighting the opportunities that these organizations have to, to you know, to support a victim. So one of the things we've been working quite extensively on is encouraging them to install a HR policy around domestic abuse. So along with the Corporate Alliance Against Domestic Abuse and the End Domestic Abuse Initiative here in the UK, um, what we're really pushing for is big, you know, corporate organizations across the board, big or small, to have a HR policy that says the following really, that you, you take your stand on domestic abuse, explaining that there's an organization that you don't you wouldn't tolerate it that you don't agree with it and there are um, ways in which you would respond if it was reported but most importantly in a way it's a creating that opportunity for a survivor or victim of abuse to realize and know well I can talk to my line manager because there is a policy in place so that gives me an opportunity to broach the subject um, and in doing that, we know that many women whom or men who are working struggle to access specialist support services for a really simple practical reason in the fact that most of these services are open nine to five. So in order to gain the support, it, it, you're looking for somebody to be able to say there is a service out there that you can use and we could do it and we could do it in partnership with them. So for example, we could get the IDFA service coming in to meet you in a confidential meeting room within the company, which suits you and will keep you safe. But actually then it's an opportunity that the employer could do. Um, so we're looking at some of those types of things, but also really looking at um, provision for taking time off needs to be there. So going to court, for example, we know that domestic abuse doesn't end when separation occurs. And actually not only is a family and especially the victim more uh, increased risk at that point, but actually that the abuse can continue for huge amounts of time, um, you know, going through the family court system. Every time you have to go into another school meeting, there's another spike or an incident of abuse. So actually it's looking at, is provision and support available for a survivor of abuse during that process? So they can get the time to go and see this, you know, to attend court, to go to solicitors, um, to get the advice that they need. But also those, that all has an impact on someone's ability to do their job. So one of the things we're really encouraging, especially through HR departments, is that when we ask questions around somebody's change in their performance, which may be sudden, or if somebody's sickness absence um, has suddenly shot up, is not to just to assume, but it's also to create a, um, a conversation where someone could potentially say, well, actually things aren't, aren't going so well at home. I would like to access support. Um, could you put me in contact with that specialist support service? So really we're just encouraging to think differently and to ask different questions, but also to be prepared for the answer. And, you know, because one of the things that what, through this conversation we've had with many people who are, are working in corporate organizations is that I would like to ask, um, and I've been in situations before where I've thought something's going on with somebody that I line managed. I wanted to broach the subject, but actually I didn't know how to ask the questions. 
I was also scared that if I did ask the questions, what would happen next? How would I keep this person safe? What happens if I start, you know, if I open a tin of worms and I can't close it and I go home at five o'clock and what does this happens to this person? So a lot of times people had avoiding, uh, avoided asking questions. So we're hoping that this policy and with the training that goes alongside it, that if we can equip more and more people within corporate organizations to A, listen without judgment, B, feel more confident to offer that support. Um, and the support that we're suggesting somebody does is link them, link somebody with a specialist domestic abuse service. We're not saying that you need to provide any answers. We're not saying that you need to direct somebody in, in, in what they need to do legally or going to the police or anything like that. Just quite simply, listening without judgment, hearing what somebody has said, and putting them in contact with that specialist support service. And I suppose in a way that was... Um, one of the things that happened with the campaign is that we realized that the more we talk about domestic abuse and the more we encourage the members of the community or the public or organizations who, to talk about domestic abuse, it often comes to, well, what happens next? And quite, quite um, conveniently, in a way, is that we've been able to develop an app called Bright Sky which is a free to download app. It's available in the UK at the moment, so in distribution within the UK, but there are ways that you can access it if you're, if you're outside the UK. Um, and what it How is- How can is people find the app? Can they find it on, uh, let's say, the App Store or? Yeah, so it's available on Google. I think it's Google Play Store and Apple and the Apple Store. Both stores, it's free to download. Um, and the app does a number of different things, but I think most importantly from the aspect of how it fits in with the campaign and being and referring from it, it provides you with all of the specialist independent domestic violence advocates and all the independent specialist sexual violence advocates numbers across the United Kingdom. So you can search via a postcode, via a town, and you would be able to link somebody straight away with that specialist support service. And for, for us, that was one of the most important aspects. That say, for example, you work for Coca-Cola and you are within their distribution team and you're a line manager and one of your staff members says, look, something's not something's happening at home. I'm, I, I need, I would like some support or I'd like to get some help. All you've got to do is quickly check on your phone, be able to point out that specialist support service, provide that telephone number. But also what you can do is recommend that the person is asking asking you for help to download the Bright Sky app. Because in addition to having all those specialist support numbers, it also has a um, two healthy relationship questionnaires. So it's a great way to gauge what's going on in your relationship if you're look, using it for yourself. Or if you're concerned about a friend or a family member, you could then use it um, to, look, to think about what you could do to support them. Um, that tool is really, really useful if you're concerned about a friend or you want to start the conversation and you actually don't know how to start the conversation. Um, you know, passing your phone across to someone and saying, hey, have you thought about doing this questionnaire? What pops up for you? is an easy and quite a soft way to start it if you, you know, if you feel that you want to offer your friend support or you're concerned. So it does that. Um, and also in doing that, it provides a number of suggestions about how you can offer support. Or if you are thinking about leaving the abusive situation, it gives you a whole series of recommendations about things to consider to keep yourself safe. Um, there's another couple of bits to it. It also provides a journal entry system. So we know that recording what you're experiencing is very, very important. 
both for a legal opportunity later on, but actually there's also a therapeutic opportunity in that too. And different people use it in different ways. So the app in itself is in a way is like a doorway to your own email address. So it's an email address that you put up. So every single bit of communication that you do via the app stays with you. It doesn't remain in the app. Um, and what it can end up being is a log or a journal of what you've experienced which you could use in future if you wanted to go through the legal route or if you were thinking about um, pursuing other types of legal interventions. But actually for you as an individual, it may be that you save it, um, you keep a record of it happening because it's a therapeutic. And you may look back and you may use it in the future to do different bits and bobs. But that's the other element of it. And in addition to that, we have information about sexual violence, how to, safe, how to stay safe online, or even things to consider about being safe online. Um, doing information about stalking and harassment and quite an extensive bit of case studies information about sexual violence um, and the aim of it in a way was that we knew from our research that there was a need for people to have information in a way that was easy to to look through to um, digest but actually that there was an opportunity for conversation by having an app and I think that really really encouraged us in the campaign is because not only does the app form as a tool um, when we're saying that we you know as an advocate or a support person who's supporting someone who's experiencing abuse but actually it's a great way to start this conversation so going back to the campaign in a way is that yes that we focus on having partnerships and we focus on being making sure that we're consistently sending out the preventative measure and we're looking for opportunities to do that but actually there's something more that we need to do in that and so what we've been able to achieve so far and what we're planning on doing going forward is that we're working with universities across the UK um, to deliver an ambassador program so we, we ran our pilot program with the National Football League, which is the NFL. Um, interestingly enough, most universities in the UK have an American football team um, and that the NFL is quite supportive of that a university football, um, football league here in the UK, which is a great opportunity for us. So we worked with 15 young men who were from five universities and we spent just over two and a half days with them talking about sexual violence and domestic abuse. But actually we spent a little bit more time talking about masculinity and what it means to be a man in today's society, but actually what it means for men to know what their role is in ending domestic abuse and sexual violence. And <clears throat> I think one of the most powerful things that came from that just those two and a half days with this group of men was that they were equally angry and equally frustrated and equally desperate to end domestic abuse and sexual violence. And it was as if they'd been given an opportunity to take part in ending it, they, they ran with it and so passionate about it that it was, it was unbelievable. It was silencing you know, after spending just under 20 years working in the sector and never ever having this experience before working with young men about it, preventative stuff, it was, it was humbling. That's the best way to say it. Because I think one of the things that we realized after delivering it out of those 15 men, I think there was all but five who had a personal experience of domestic abuse, either in the sense that they themselves had been victims or witnessed it as a children or that they had a um, friend or a family member who had perpetrated abuse. Um, and in some instances, um, one young man um, had recently lost his mum as a result of domestic abuse from she was. So, and all of that information was obviously was then shared. I mean, we knew a little bit of it before going into this, this um, training, training course, but 
the power of them sharing this message was unbelievable. So what we ended up doing is after those two and a half days as our peer ambassadors, our NFL peer ambassadors, then went on to deliver a awareness and preventative workshop to just over 200 young men and boys. Um, and they spoke about consent, healthy relationships, the use of language when we talk about sexual um, relations with each other and what this could then obviously then mean when you start thinking about it with your intimate relationship with your partner. But actually what was really, really interesting was how many questions everybody had around consent and how desperate everybody was to have a conversation around consent. And um, what was really quite useful in a way is that Lisa Friel, whom is the um, vice president of the NFL across the world, she specifically works around um, prosecution. So if there's um, a reporter of a player who's been involved in a domestic abuse incident, Lisa will go, go in and examine the case and ensure that the correct um, punishments are to, um, to the NFL players. And in doing that, um, all NFL players and the support staff that work with each team have to undergo uh, have a significant amount of training about domestic abuse, sexual violence, as well as character building and other bits and bobs. So she was able to share the example that she uses with the players out in the US, which was that if you're not able to, um, to drive your partner home in your car, why are you able to make a decision about, if, about having sex or not? So if you're unable to drive someone home in a car, you have to ask yourself, am I in the right place to make this decision about should I go ahead and have sex or not? And in the same way, if your partner is not sober enough to drive you home in that car, is that person able to say yes and no? The answer is no. So actually it's not safe. You, and, and interestingly enough that the young men loved this analogy and they, they went on to, to sing, you know, to sing his praises because they for themselves felt, now I feel like I've got a benchmark. I know I have something. Um, so they went on to re-deliver that with the 200 young men and left um, the, the session feeling overwhelmed and incredibly passionate about it. So we got them involved in our poster campaign, which these, then men, these men then took back to their university in Freshers' Week um, the next September. And interestingly enough, one of our young ambassadors had four different people search him out throughout the university because he looked like a person, now that they'd seen his face on a poster, that they could ask, how do I get help around domestic abuse and sexual violence? So we know there's a power in peer support, and we know that those peers don't always have to be women, that actually strong young men whom are positive male role models can make an absolute massive difference in ending domestic abuse and sexual violence. Um, so in a way, that's what we, we hope and continue with the campaign. Um, alongside that, we also have um, some of our, no more, well, we call it our No More Hub, as in knowledge. <laughs> um, and what we have is a couple of podcasts like yourselves, but also webinars. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about it. <laughs> Some webinars and we have some events. So we have our UK Sits No More Week coming up now in May, and that will be when will it be in May? Um, between the yeah, I know when it is, but <laughs> <laughs> between the 21st and the 27th of May. Um, we have a number of different events coming up in that week. One of them is a rally that we'll be holding in Parliament. We're working with MPs um, whom have graciously agreed to sign our prevention charter. And it's a celebration really of the domestic abuse bill, which will be the consultation, which is due to come to an end at the end of May. But also it's a great opportunity to bring politicians together alongside other partners in a room where we all say no more to domestic abuse and sexual violence. So we've got a number of different speakers, um, as well as having a first launch of our new no our campaign single which has been written by a singer songwriter here in london and 
Um, it's accompanied nice. by a choir of survivors. And yeah, so we hope to release our video in the summer, but pretty much that's that's the year rally event. And then we have a, um, a conference that we've set up um, about navigating abuse in a technological world. And that's really looking at some of the, the impact of, of abuse sorry, in the impact of technology or the use of technology um, to perpetrate abuse. Because what we're realizing is that actually every couple of days there's a new app that's created, which we don't necessarily know about, that is another avenue for abuse to be perpetrated. Absolutely. You know, and, uh, and, problem. You know, and what we think often is that, okay, well, Facebook, you know, if we don't understand something like technological-wise, our first response is always, well, we'll turn it off, cut it out, get rid of it. But actually that can also be isolated isolating for some people as well so what we're hoping with this conference is not only will it highlight some of the areas where we hadn't yet realized there was additional risks but hopefully give the tools for caseworkers and frontline workers to be able to support survivors of abuse to use those tools safely if they want to or feel confident enough to close them down um, safely as well um, so yeah that's the aim for that and then on the Tuesday we have a, um, a roundtable discussion event where we'll be looking at the role men have in ending domestic abuse and sexual violence um so pretty much we've got a big week ahead of us um and that's our big celebration week we have a, um, a couple of other events happening on sort of the outside of that so merton council are putting on their no more event um we have a what's called a cocktails for change event happening oh, nice. in soho which is really, really nice. Um, <laughs> it's a member of the community, a supporter, who has um, basically said what well, she really wants to get involved and how she's doing is she's putting on an event in Opium in Soho, which is a bar, and, and it's an entrance fee with cocktails and music, so we'll have live music as well. And really it's a great opportunity for us to bring together different people to start sharing this message around preventive. And, and really that's what we want to do. For so long we've always looked at you know, the, um, the professionals, the police, the social services departments, and, and rightly so, they are responsible for ending domestic abuse and sexual violence. But actually, as an individual, we also have an opportunity. And I think that's what we really want to be pushing this year. The campaign is asking, is encouraging everybody to ask themselves what I can do. Because there's lots that we can do. Well, you know, what I love about all of this, that you use role models and powerful role models to show that well there can also be male victims i mean it's always about women but the male victims are well easily overlooked at least in the netherlands i think they are overlooked and that you in, that you include role models to to educate an audience what i was wondering when you are old and you are looking back to your life what do you want to have accomplished and or what is the desired outcome of your work? When I left school and start before I went into university, you have a whole set of hopes and dreams for yourself about what you would like to achieve in your life and your career and what it could be. And I know back from back then, all I wanted to do was work with women. I just knew that's that was it, you know. And and um, and I wanted to be able to make. I wanted to make a change. But not necessarily, like, it didn't necessarily have to be a massive change. It just had to be a change for one person, for two people. And I think, in a way, I've been very blessed that actually throughout my my time of working with both victims and survivors of abuse, or, um, that that's happened. You know, I've been able to meet women in their most 
I don't even have the words to say to describe what moment in time it is. It's horrendous. It's horrific. It's, it's devastating and it's challenging, but actually that those women have shared so much of themselves with me in, in, in sharing what their experiences, but also their hopes and their dreams that I already feel so blessed that actually I've seen those women become everything that they've wanted to become. Feels you know, good. and I think that for me is like, I know that when I'm older, <laughs> that will be something that will be important, you know, that I remember the most out of it. Um, but right now, that is the thing that keeps me going because there's, there's just something so amazing about, you know, walking beside or even being in the company of somebody whom you meet in one, one way and then in a couple of months or whatever, however long it takes that they've, they've moved along in their journey and that they are completely happy. I don't know if like, like a sunshine beam in themselves. Like I think that's such a special and precious moment that, that every one of those has been enough. But ultimately what I would like to see at the end of it would be that this campaign has really sort of made a mark. And the mark that I'd love it to be is that we actually, as an, as an individual across the world, is that we stop sort of saying, oh, but they should do something. Oh, but that person should do something. Oh, well, you know what? That, that, person, that article said that that organization was terrible. It's all their fault. I want that to change. And I want that to be, wow, I have an opportunity as an individual to make a difference. I can make that Taking difference. their responsibility. Absolutely. And the small bit that I can do actually contributes to a huge set of movements, you know, and, and that's an incredible thing to see. You know, often we, we, we often refer to um, smoking in a way as, the, as an example, and it's completely in relation to domestic abuse, completely different, like across the sphere, but there is something about that behavioral and societal change of attitude towards smoking that happened quite suddenly in some respects, but also happened over a, a period of time to the point where that if you watch a, a movie that was filmed in the 80s, you're cool if you smoke, like, you know, um, the Gunston 500, the, the Camel Man, all these people are incredibly cool, and obviously that was perpetuated by the media, by society that you would call if you smoke whereas now you quite legitimately can ostracize a, a smoker to not even outside the building they need to be down the road around the corner and hidden and socially smoking is unacceptable to the point you can touch openly if some smokers in your face so it's interesting how that shift has happened so i would like to see as a incomplete or you know community or complete outward focusing ways that the shift has been that we without question do not accept that domestic abuse and sexual violence is okay and that individually we've all taken a responsibility to to end it and that actually we're making those small changes which could be challenging someone for making inappropriate comments it could be having a conversation with a, a friend about something that perhaps they've never just had an opportunity to discuss about what a healthy relationship looks like it could be advocating by turning up to women's marches or marches against domestic abuse and sexual violence it's is things like um getting on social media and and promoting and sharing a positive and preventative measure about domestic abuse and sexual violence all these are things that we as individuals can do which take quite a minimal amount of effort but make a huge difference um out there and i think that's that's one of the biggest things i think i'd like to change but i know now that i'm already blessed that i've been really able to work with so many incredible women I believe when we educate other people and share our knowledge, then it will cause, a, I believe it's called a ripple effect. 
Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It's a because you know what? Isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, knowledge is nothing until you share it. Yes, absolutely. And that's the thing. It's like the more we talk about it and the more we, you know, it, it is about sharing our experiences of what's happened. I mean, and together I think, we are stronger. But what I um, was really horrified to notice is that a lot of professionals still use victim blaming. Absolutely. Yeah. And how do you, well, handle that? Do you something with that too? Um, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the, one of the most important things to, to install is that we have to have domestic abuse training and sexual violence training absolutely. in every single organization. It happens across the board to, to so it, it's in, it cannot not be within your training package. If you're going to teach someone to train how to turn, how to turn on your Outlook email, you should also be talking about domestic and sexual violence. It should be completely par and par of normal normalcy because um, I think in doing that, that's what we need. So it's difficult to say, but I suppose in truth, I know here in the UK, for example, in, since we've had our, um, the austerities measures have come in place, which probably started around about 2007, one of the first things that a lot of organizations and charities and, and across the board started um, was their training budgets and started slowly taking things like that away. And, um, and actually then looking at who attends training and how many times we start and we have these conversations um, about different things we need to learn about. So we could see that happening and we can see that has had an um, impact on like exactly what you say about professionals and their ability to understand. But also it's a bit more than just that understanding. It's about listening without judgment. Um, oh, that's so important. Yeah, you know, and actually being able to see the person as well as their experiences. Because I think a lot of what happens with professionals is that they see the domestic abuse and then they see and they forget that there's a human being um and i know that's a crazy thing to say but i'm i'm just thinking about like a, for example a housing officer who will say sorry there's nothing that we can do we can't house you but not have any understanding of what that really means for the human being standing there completely understand that the housing officers probably had about 30 or 40 people that they've seen that day but actually what about the person in front of you so there's something about us as a, as a society that's no longer seeing the people um, because we're so used to seeing the problem that someone potentially presents with and I use the, the word problem quite loosely in that um, but also that we're so used to, to speaking without seeing somebody's face so I think sometimes now is that you know we'll we we'll things like oh well can you, if you complete an assessment over the phone and then I'll see you face to face but that assessment over the phone is not telling you about the real experience of the person and if we're in offering proper support that's what we have to start doing so I agree 100% with you that we need to focus on education and understanding um, and one of the most interesting things that I'll often say when we do when I deliver training especially with other professionals is okay this is always the thing stop what you're doing five minutes and you need to pack up your house and all your belongings right now what are you going to take with you and it's a striking moment because I think it's, it's, it's an opportunity for many of those professionals to really think about what that means um, for, you know, because that's really the reality of a survivor of domestic abuse is that they've, they're ready, you know, they're able to leave this situation this, at this moment in time, it's safe to leave. I need to gather my belongings. I'm going into a woman's refuge or um, an emergency accommodation. 
a taxi's coming to pick me up, I'm really fortunate, or in the most part, I'm walking down to the station with my children with me, I can only take what I can carry. And when you start realizing and, and talking about that experience and really focusing on the trauma of that experience, I think you can see the, the shift in many professionals' um, eyes when they're realizing, actually, I need to see the person that comes in, not what my previous understanding was about domestic abuse. Where we've been able to work with professionals, you know, and there's lots of organizations and charities like Hestia who provide incredible training. Um, we can see those differences happening, um, but obviously within the areas within those professionals where they don't access this level of it, of training, and then you can see in most parts they not the best experiences for survivors or victims. And I really admired all the things that uh, that you are doing, all the, the different kind of projects that are going on. That's really amazing. I can't even imagine uh, <laughs> scheduling all those different tasks. <laughs> If you can imagine a stove with lots of pots boiling and we all like all of us are watching it from parts and then we move past it's like it's an incredible game of chess. It's it's loads of fun and, and we're very blessed as a team to be in the roles that we are doing this. How do you keep track of all those things? <laughs> I did pots on a stove it's all visualized in our heads. No, we have some we do have like great um admin, you know the team is brilliant at keeping hold of things and, and dates and times and stuff. And we do spend a lot of time organizing different bits that come up. Um, you know, yeah, <laughs> but as you can imagine, it is a bit like, yeah, you're sort of catching things here and there. So sometimes I feel it's, yeah, sometimes we have a really busy period of the year and then it goes nice and I get what it feels like, Oh, it's quiet for a little bit. And then all of a sudden a great big spike again. So we're just trying to, keeping it as smooth as possible but yeah we're loving it so but how big is the team then um currently the team is me and marcus who you've you've met yeah. um and then we have sinead who's a digital marketing officer as well and then um we have um and then i've just recruited sarah who's coming on board to be our partnership manager so she oversees the she'll oversee the links with all of our partners and focus very much on yeah. engaging them a little bit more and, and stuff like that and then i we sit within our the history of comms department and fundraising team so we're quite blessed in a sense where these couple of weeks have been really intense with a lot of work to do um so a couple of the the comms officers and the um other team members are stepping in and doing some phone calls to mps for us and stuff like that so we're a bit like a we're a team within a bigger team that then everyone's now working on this politics bit. so it's really really it's incredible and also really fortunate that um we have because we're a large domestic abuse and sexual violence service we have obviously a huge amount of frontline caseworkers and managers and staff that provide support as well so it's really good to be able to you know like yesterday for example I spent the morning in one of our services just catching up with some of them our residents finding out what's happening for them and you know and, and actually what are the some of the issues and that they want to get to speak about around prevention and is there anything that's really telling at the moment that they'd like to talk about you know so quite interesting what came up there was looking at the the provision for children in our refuges around their mental health So part of our prevention charter and what we're asking on P MPs to sign up is around look, we're asking for the system in which mental health provision is provided to children to be re-looked at. So we're not asking for more money because everybody's always asking for more money. We're just saying, can we re-look at the system? Because the system currently doesn't work. So what often happens is that a child obviously arrives in the refuge with mum and they will spend between six to nine months in that refuge, depending on um, how, you know, um, rehousing opportunities and where they are. And in that time, um, that child's obviously recovery in recovery from um, 
experiencing or witnessing domestic abuse other in trauma and to access talking therapies is quite quite different from area to area so in some places within London for example um, you could be in that session within four weeks and your children are accessing support other parts of London it could be 12 months and you've already moved on by then but actually what we know is that children who witness domestic abuse are more likely to experience um, domestic abuse in their adult life um, or or an and actually or and and all that they are also more likely to experience for um, mental health issues in um, adult life because of the trauma and the, that they've experienced as children. So if we can start working sooner with children whilst they are living in that refuge, and if there's a way that we can work better with our um, children's mental health services to deliver that support, that would change for so many of our children. Um, so that's one of the areas we're really looking at and, and focusing for because, yeah, a lot of the, and one of the moms was saying that, you know, she's already been there for three months and she's waiting for her son to get counselling because he's not sleeping at night and she knows he's struggling at school. And although the school has been fantastic, he needs his own opportunity to talk to somebody outside of her. Um, and that's very important. Psychologists that you can trust. Absolutely. And you know, who understands domestic abuse? Absolutely. Because uh, sometimes you talk to professionals and then you're like, well, where did your education come from? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I've done so many of them and seen mm. school programs. And, and then they were like, well, this is an awesome school program. And I was looking into it and I, and, and I asked them, is this all there is? I don't remember what kind of study it was, but I remember that they would be working with children, speaking in front of them. And I told them, uh, you are going to have children who are abused. You are going to meet other people who are abused. What are you going to do? Yeah. And they didn't know. And at first I thought, well, uh, their training will start. But I am certain that they will not know what to do when they have a real life case in front of them. And... It was really, I, I don't even have the words for that kind of education. They will pass anyway. It was, it was um, um, and the information in that curriculum, I was like, is this all there is? Really? It was, it was my talk and then, well, the test and a, a few lessons, but the lessons were, well, not not really much in it so it was really it was really heavy but i was thinking when you were talking just now you must hear some really dreadful stories sometimes and what do you do uh to re-energize because um and do you take the stories with you at home how do you go on when you're at home how do, do you leave it at the uh, front door and close the door and see you tomorrow morning how do you handle dreadful stories um i suppose when i was pre i think previously i, I used to have a work mobile and it sounds crazy but i used to have a work mo i still have a work mobile phone but I, my work mobile phone used to be my way to to separate work from home so i used to be smart Um, so um, I used to be quite a, um, a religious exercise that I would finish my day. I would have my time driving home, which would be my time to think about what's happened in the day, work through anything. And, you know, a part of the work that we do is that, yes, we do have external supervision in the most part, um, but it's your colleagues who you see in the office or whom you work with that you can often have a bit of 
opportunity to quite naturally um, de-stress from it. So you may have a conversation about this is what I've just met with this person, may, you know, and these are the things that have happened. These are the things I need to do. And just chatting and sharing that with your colleague can help and, and, and give you a little bit of extra support if it's up. But I think in a way, for me, I used to, when I'm at work, I'm at work 150, you know, 150%, but when I'm home, I'm home. Um, so this phone, turning my phone off was quite a religious activity. So I would come in, finish after I've driven, turn my phone off, put it down. And then I would be very much about that. I would talk about what happened during the day as in I've been to meetings, I've been to events. I've, I've, um, we had a great day in the office or, you know, this, or, you know, it was a tough day at work, but I've never fed any of it to into my friends or to my family, but it was just a it was just a conscious decision that I made when I started the work 16, 17 years ago. Um, so that's how I've managed working with survivors and victims of abuse. The other side of it as well is that I suppose because I've been fortunate enough and blessed enough to see um, how, how somebody's moved from that process of entering into one of our services and then going on, you know, through their journey and, and then getting them, you know, I've met, seen them when they're at the space where they're survivors and that they're ready to talk about their experience and share it, support other people, is that no matter whom has disclosed whatever story to me, I can still see that at the end. So in a way to, for my own emotional and mental um well-being that's how i've been able to see is that right now this person's in front of me they've experienced you know they're in trauma and i'm listening to everything that they're saying knowing inside my tummy somewhere that the that I, that day will come because that's what's obviously i wouldn't share that with the person until they're ready but that's how i've been able to to listen to you know and there is so like you mentioned there was yeah they're not it's not they're not easy to listen to and hear it can be quite hard, and I know um, from fact that those stories can well linger on in your mind. So I have to make the conscious decision. Okay, no, now I'm home. Now I'm with my children. Now I'm with my partner, and uh, I close the book for today. So Absolutely. I don't. They don't haunt me in my sleep. <laughs> And, um, you know, and it's interesting because you find really, you know, different practical ways. I had, I had a colleague who used to do it that she would leave the office and then just before she got in her car, she would turn off her phone and now that was it. And now my day's finished, pardon me, and now my day's finished and I'm going home and it's going to be great. And everybody has a different way. Um, maybe they, they have a group of friends where they would go and share stories with. So at one point um, we had like a group of colleagues who worked in different different organizations but actually all worked with survivors of domestic abuse and we would often meet on a Saturday and we wouldn't talk about individual cases but just being around each other to say oh last week was really tough you know I was I felt physically exhausted or you know I, I was chatting you know I spent the day with, with somebody and and it was really tough so I, and I took a couple of hours in the evening where I was just quiet time just to, you know, and it's those, you know, it's knowing that you, it's really important to have other professionals who do well, understand. Absolutely. And that's a huge value for you as, you know, an individual providing support, but in the same way um, that we work with victims and we talk about peer support, we, you know, as supporters, we need that too. Um, and it's also, it's really important that we spend, a, spend enough time reflecting um, I think that there's moments in our lives, which is just completely fine, that our um, our emotional cup is a little bit lower down. Um, perhaps other things have happened or perhaps there's other things that are happening in your own home life or, you know, some whatever it may be, it's okay. 
um, as you know, and it's okay to go actually today, today I'm, I'm not a hundred percent, but I'm going into this conversation knowing that. So I'm, I'm reflecting on my own self. So maybe I need to not have an appointment afterwards or, and maybe I need to go for a walk afterwards around a block just to free my mind, just because I know that I'm not my strongest today. Um, and taking care of yourself is very important if you do uh, emotional heavy work. And um, what is yeah. the thing that you are most eager to solve with your work? Most eager to solve? Yeah. Um, <laughs> gosh, that's a really difficult question because I'm like, I just need to pick one thing, don't I? Um, <laughs> You can pick a few. Okay. I think, I think, I suppose one of the things for me is that with everything, with the, with hashtag me too, and, and the masses of miles of people have come forward and people have obviously spoken about it. There was one tweet, which I can't even remember how it was written or what it was said, but it was something that really stuck, like struck home to me was the fact that if all of the, all of us as women are all sharing our stories of when we've experienced sexual harassment or sexual violence, that if one million women came forward, then there, in maths terms, should necessarily be a million men who perpetrated sexual violence, which would then in turn mean that as women, we know some of these men. Um, and actually then, what are, who are we talking to about it? And are we sharing our message with the people closest to us? So I think there's something about us um, getting, getting over this. Is, he, he didn't know. And actually saying, well, let's let's tell you how then what appropriate behavior is, I think. So I think, I'm sorry, I'm literally going in a round in a circle in it. So my biggest thing I'd love to be able to, to I solve would be the fact that, that <laughs> that excuse is just, it is just an excuse now. And we, we push it away and we call it an excuse. But actually to say, well, what are you talking about? You've been educated, you know, you've had healthy relationship education. You've got it published everywhere what appropriate ways are to treat each other and what sexual violence is. So you can't say you didn't know because the information is everywhere telling you what appropriate behavior is, what is acceptable and what not is it and what isn't acceptable. So I think that would be something I'd like to see that it becomes so embedded in us as individuals that we could speak to a six, seven year old child and then say, actually, you're not, this is the way you're supposed to be appropriately, you know, treating each other. And that message then continues throughout their childhood until they reach, you know, the early teens. And they're saying, in a, in a relationship, this is how we need to appropriately treat each other because, you know, it, but that comes in many ways. We've got to start challenging the messaging that our young people and us as adults even receive from movies, from un unrequested um, pornography, which is, pops up on your internet and they're everywhere and um, unsolicited, but also the ways in which we, we talk about things and, and the language that's used in particular on TV and in films, which completely minimizes and in some cases even justifies you know, and, I, and yes. justifies abuse for the need of entertainment. And, and I just think to myself, that oh, when did this all happen and get so bad? Because, yeah, so I'd like to see that. I'd like to see us accept and understand that messaging is important and that actually nobody should be saying, I didn't know, I didn't know what was acceptable behavior. Because and it starts in the home. Absolutely. And when I look at um, how my partner and I raise our kids, we have... Um, multiple children <laughs> to <Absolutely. laughs> um, 
from earlier relationships and um, for the, uh, for uh, living living at home. Oh, lovely! And um, when we talk quite a bit with them about um, um, how to treat another person, uh, whether it's a male or female, mm-hmm. and because I I think it's very important that we educate our children and not only our children but um whomever we we meet meet and well not a stranger hey i want to tell you about emotional abuse no (laughs) well (laughs) that's kind of creepy (laughs) (laughs) going to the neighbor hey uh, (laughs) today i want to talk about emotional abuse but well just well that it's not a taboo anymore to discuss uh, certain topics if you know what I mean it was no, absolutely kind of and I agree with you because <laughs> we need to it needs to be on our kitchen tables that we're having these conversations yes. and it needs to be um, you know when we're having you know coffee and tea with our friends that we're talking about it and yes. you know even That's when our friend, yeah, our friend says to us oh I'm having a really tough time with my partner that we don't go oh you know shame poor her. Oh, I wonder if they're going to separate and rather go why what's happening yes and you know actually that's not okay if somebody is is monitoring your phone calls or somebody's checking up on you all the time oh i'm your best friend that's not okay the, this is how you can get help you know so it's it, it is it's about the and for that person whom is their friend has said that it could be that moment where they go wow somebody understands I'm, i can go back there to that person and ask for help i can get out of the situation now so it's those precious moments which you don't realize are precious that uh, could change someone's life. It's very important that they gain that we can gain knowledge about financial abuse, emotional abuse, emotional abuse. That people can't. What you thought earlier that people can't hide with. I didn't know. Oh yeah. Because they did. I have one more question. Okay. Can you share a quote or something that, or did you read a book or something that will encourage other professionals to keep up the good work? Where you, where the inspiration needs to come from, and, and granted, I'm just saying, if if there was a book that jumped out that would that would carry me through, I would say probably, I pre-apologize for my pronunciation of her name would be Ayanna Fansant. I absolutely love her poem. Yesterday I cried. I think that's so powerful about knowing yourself as a woman and and accepting yourself as a woman but I think um and I've you know as we've been guilty of this as a team is that when things have been really tough and, and really difficult is actually going to the feedback that you receive from the service users that you actually have helped and you've worked with because they're you know those thank you cards if they do come or even passing comment it's really important that those get written down because those are those that's real that's from people you've worked with and it's incredibly inspiring when you've had a tough day when you've for example been in court and and you're the person you've been supporting hasn't had a positive outcome and you've left and you've made sure someone's safe and you've gone and you've gone wow devast you know you feel that devastation not only for the person and, and what they've experienced and what they've witnessed but also for the hope that's been taken out of the situation that in those moments seeing you know that feedback and and speaking to other services that perhaps previously worked with a message is so powerful and it can go right it'll give you me the strength to wake up tomorrow and get going again because there are people that are being helped and, and things are changing and, and happening so i would say that you know i always recall working with a, um, a woman who first she first came to the service that i was in and 
and she'd previously been a cake, you know, she'd had a cake decorating business and she'd been really successful, but she'd lived in South London and a lot of her business was built on the people in the community that she knew. But obviously she couldn't return there because, um, the abusive partner was also very well known in the community and, and would have found it. So she resettled in another part of London and her experience of abuse had been that um, her partner had sold or off all of her cake decorating equipment. And, you know, and as you know, that's how it can be, it is really expensive to build up that amount of different bits and bobs that you need, as well as, you know, your, your actual baking equipment, as well as your baking, even to the point that he'd sold her oven, which was a, a really good oven that she'd managed to purchase and she'd saved up for and had been really proud. So this had been something that had been taken from her quite significantly. And we worked with her for about six months and then we were able, we were actually, pro, we set up a peer support group. So a community-based group, which was run by um, women who had worked with our service and actually they then delivered the support to other women who were in the service. So it was like a, that type of setup. And the group took its own personality as it was led by volunteers with staff just sort of peripherally organizing and being on the outside for safety. Um, and um, she came and she said, well, you know, when we're talking about all the different things that we could do, um, she'd forgotten the first round of volunteers. I'm not ready to be a volunteer now, but a year later she was like, no, I'm ready to be a volunteer. She finished the volunteer process and she was like, right, I think I could do an activity. I could probably teach a little bit about cake decorating. I could teach people to do cupcakes, um, you know, and that wouldn't cost a lot of money because I have a, um, because this is the equipment we'd need. So we were able then to go out and purchase equipment for the, the, you know, the peer support group, as we called it, the butterfly project. And this continued for about six months, slowly and surely every couple of sessions, she would offer to do something a little bit more, or she would teach a little bit of this or teach. Another. And the response that we received from the people, the women who were attending was incredible. They loved every minute of it. So obviously this was consistently sort of building her confidence in it. And, um, and then she said, and then we were able to work with her to set up a website and um, she launched her cake decorating business again. But this time she did it as a activity-based cake decorating business and had arranged a couple of sessions in the summer holidays where mums could sign up their young children, you know, their kids and come along to it. And that summer she was voted the best activity in the whole borough. So for me, that's the story that is incredible. That's the one that keeps us going because she managed to do all of that and it was it was just powerful so much so that now she stops taking orders for christmas cakes in <laughs> um and so and her words were everything that i thought i had lost has now um been everything that i have gained plus more and wow. for me that's just she's just an inspiration and she's incredible and she's marching through life um baking <laughs> the most incredible cakes and She's, you know, she speaks about how the fact that it was the other women that came to that peer support group who really inspired her and really pushed her to go forward, encouraged her, and that she wouldn't have felt that she could have done it without being launched from within a community of women. So it's really high five to us as women and the things that we can do when we work together. It's really heartwarming. And uh, I think it's a great story to end the show with. Oh, That's a question I always ask. How can we support you? Well, you can support us by um, going onto the website, uploading your photo and supporting the gallery. Um, you can join us on social media. Um, you can share our posts and you can share some of the preventative messages that we're doing. But all in all, 
get involved. There's lots of opportunities of how you can get involved in the campaign um, and all of them can be found on our website. I really want to thank you for joining. Big thank you for listening today. Um, if you want to find any more information about UK Says No More and the campaign and the work that we're doing, you can visit us um, on social media or online and, um, and we hope to see you as a supporter soon. Lindsay, thank you for being a guest on the show. I wish you good luck with the UK Says No More week and look forward to our collaboration in the future. And I want to thank the Phoenixes too for tuning in. I think that one of the wisest lessons in this episode is this quote of Lindsay Daylove. Knowledge is nothing until you share it. So let us spread awareness about domestic violence, sexism, and let's keep our eyes open and look out for each other because you never know what another person is going through. You can find the show notes, links and references at www.aliannaloyega.com but because my name is quite difficult, you can also go to pavepodcast.com and you will go to the same website. We will be back with another episode of the Pave Podcast. If you like this episode, please give it a rating in the iTunes store. You can also check us out at pavepodcast.com where you can find the show notes, more about the guests on the show, more about women's rights, information about my personal life story and how we can overcome adversity. While you are there, make sure you sign up for the newsletter. Until the next episode of Pave Podcast. Let's work together and rise like a phoenix.